It's another episode of Movies You Should Love with Lauren and Scott. Welcome to the podcast. He's Lauren. And he's Scott. Let's get into it. So have you seen any good movies lately? Um, I have. Uh, I saw Morgan Spurlock's uh, Palm Wonderful Presents The Greatest Movie Ever Sold. How is it? I I've saw... Um... I've seen Super Size Me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the only Spurlock film I've actually seen. Oh, I saw his little bit on um... Freakonomics. Yes, yes. Um, well, let's see. It's it's a it's a very meta sort of movie. It's it's a movie about making the movie that you are watching. So it's it's kind like of adaptation. <laughs> it's it is. It's it's very much along that lines of adaptation, or it's like somewhere between a film and a behind-the-scenes documentary of how a film is made. It's just, it's a very weird kind of thing to get into, because it starts out... Yeah, you kind of get that sense from the trailer. I mean, right. the preview uh, kind of makes it out to be something right. very, very different. Right. The, um... Because basically, the, the, the plot, if you will, go with uh, the concept of having... It's a documentary film. Um... Morgan Spurlock basically sets out, he wants to fully understand or get a glimpse of what the uh, movie tie-in and promotions marketing um, world is kind of like, you know, what it's like to have sponsors for your movie. Because uh, at this point, we see it all the time in like TV and movies and stuff where, you know... um, a car will drive up and they'll make sure that you happen to notice that it's the brand new, exciting, you know, right. SUV coming that everyone should own or, uh, you know, whatever it is, or, uh, they open their refrigerator and it's all Coke products. Exactly. Something like that, you know, and, and that's a great way to get extra money for your film. Uh, you know, people love doing it. It happens all the time on TV. I mean, TV has gotten just crazy bizarre with it where they're writing, you know, whole plot lines just to push products and stuff, it's kind of amazing. Um, you know, and characters say stuff completely out of context to sell a product or something. Um, Which is interesting, because it doesn't seem like it was that long ago that on TV you saw almost the opposite of that, where you would see people eating um, potato chip out of a potato chip bag, and it would be something weird like, Frito Bays, like they'd go exactly. out of their way to cover up what they were. Exactly, and, and now it's now it's flipped around. And what's really interesting about it is when you really think about it, this whole concept of of sponsors like this is actually a throwback, really, to the very early days of broadcasting, you know, radio and television, where the you know, Colgate Hour, the Colgate Hour, you know, uh, Jack Benny presented by Lucky Strikes or something, you know, yeah. and and they they spoke of Lucky Strikes, you know, half the jokes in the show were about Lucky <laughs> right. Strikes, you know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, but it was it was that it was the Lucky Strike, it was the Colgate Hour, you know, it was whatever, and um, it's that's kind of what we're back to. It's kind of a weird sort of thing, except they're trying to be like both more subtle about it now and less subtle all at the same time. It's either subtle or like wink, wink. <laughs> yeah, um, there was. I don't know if you if you saw this, but there was an episode of Las Vegas a few years ago, like two or three years not. ago, um, back when that was a show on TV, where it, it it was it was the first time that I had ever really noticed this, but. They were there was like this party going on at the hotel, and like there were these characters that they had introduced, 
and the characters ended up going and like gaining these cars, and there was a literal like five minute interlude that tur- that that was the commercial break as well. Like like the car company had bought the entire commercial break, mm-hmm. and they filmed it as part of the show. <laughs> That's funny. And so the show takes these characters who they had introduced as part of the show, right? And without cutting they launch into the commercial break. So it takes you completely outside of the story of what was going on in the show. Here's and you them. follow these five characters on their little adventure. That's hilarious. It was the weirdest... I mean, it was kind of cool, but at the same time, you just went, marketing has gone to a whole other level. I think the first time I noticed something like that, because um, I, I tend to not notice those things. I mm-hmm. tend to take everything for granted because I tend to like a lot of movies where they they'll sit around and talk about the minutia of Star Wars. So mm-hmm. if someone picks up a Coke, I don't really think about it. But the first time it really stood out to me was... I'll um, be right back. Okay. The first time it stood out to me, while Lauren's away, we can get into this, um, was the first Transformers movie. Um, I don't know if... I'm sure they have, those movies are fresh on everybody's mind and will go down in the annals of history as something to be remembered or forgotten. But there's the sequence really when the cars first come out for the first time, you have this really slow, big, uh, I don't know, it feels like a minute long sequence where they show off these cars in all of their glory. And it's just, it's the transformers. But once you get down into the actual details of the scenes, really just the cars driving around and, um, it stood out to me as something that's clearly a commercial. Um, the other thing that I noticed, which we can keep talking about since Lauren's away, I just okay. I just got here. <laughs> okay, I was just I did I just mentioned the fact that uh, the first time I noticed it was the Transformers movie, which kind of did a similar thing. Once all the all the Transformers got together for the first time and they started driving through the desert, it was just like a montage, a car commercial montage. Yeah, exactly. And I was like, this is kind of weird. They're really, you know making a special note that this is the new Mustang, or this is the whatever, whatever, whatever. Indeed. Well, anyhow, so the greatest movie ever sold, presented by Palm Wonderful, um, um, is, is a very interesting look, because it's surprisingly both way more honest than you would expect something to be, because the whole thing is him going after sponsors, who then sponsor the movie, and so you end up seeing the entire process of him getting the sponsors... Um, and seeing their products. and But it's really interesting because you see why they would do something like this. You get kind of that behind the scenes of like, here's what the marketing people are thinking. Here's what the owners of these companies are thinking. Here's, you know, why would they want their product to be associated with this movie? Um, right. What kind of control do they exert once their product gets involved? You know, um, that's the part that always, that I've always been the most curious about is, that control, like, do they have control over the way it's portrayed, or do they actually can they dictate the change of a story element? Right, and so there's uh, you know there's this stuff where all of the different companies have these contracts with them, and they each stipulate different things of how their product is presented, and and you know what controls they have on the movie and that kind. Of. So it's just it's very interesting from that angle. Um, you know, that said, it is very meta and very. Um, single focused on this stuff. So if you're not really interested in like movie marketing and, and kind of some of the behind the scenes stuff of how movies are really made, you know, maybe not the on set stuff, but much more the, the business angle of it all. It's probably not a movie for you. Um, but is it, 
is it entertaining for those who just want a good time? Because Spurlock tends to like definitely mix in a lot of comedy. It is. It's it's very entertaining. It's um it's very humorous. I mean, the the big thing I will say is you have to like Morgan Spurlock because he is on screen. 95% of the time in the movie. Yeah. Um, you know, so it is, it's very funny and lighthearted for the most part, um, you know, self-deprecating and, and so forth. It, it, it's, it's a good entertaining documentary. Um, so I have no qualms recommending it, but I can see that it may have a limited audience just because of its topic is, is the only thing I would say. Fair enough. So, but yeah, I liked it. And I'm going to explain why I think, it, I think it got a fairly limited release in theaters um, I'm not sure it even played here in Chattanooga. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it got whatever was contractually stipulated, though. <laughs> be- because that was part of some of the contracts, is how big the release would be and some of that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So, anyhow. Uh, you know, it's worth your time. If you, uh, Obviously, it's the kind of movie I'm going to be very interested in, because I, I love the whole, you know, uh, right. we do this podcast, and we love the whole world of movies, and, and I'm very interested in the business side of things. and You know, uh, so I loved it. Cool. So, add it to your Netflix queue if you think it sounds good. I think I will. Um, I saw a couple movies. Um, the first one that I would I, I can't recommend enough is The Conspirator. I don't know if you've seen this one yet. Um, I haven't, a, but it seems like one that I should somehow. Yes. It's about, <laughs> it's about the trial of Mary Surratt, who uh, was the woman who ran the boarding house that... Um, uh, John Wilkes Booth and his conspirators used to plan the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, as well as the attack on um, the other men of the of the cabinet that they attacked that night. And it is a it is a it's fantastic. I really can't recommend it enough. It's a great period piece movie. It's a great courtroom drama. It it is as relevant today as it was then, and you can really see how it. The only gripe I have about it is there's one scene about an hour into the movie where two actors get together and say, this is what this movie is about, and this is why this movie is important. <laughs> and then the story progresses. And they didn't need that scene. It's between Tom Wilkinson, who plays uh, Reverend, Re- Rev- Reverend e. Johnson, and uh, Edwin Stanton, who, play, uh, who played by uh, Kevin Klein. And uh, they get together, and they have this little moment and they don't need it because every other scene in the movie is very clear. Like, this is what this movie's about. This is why it's important. And it's a really good movie about this little moment in history that I think kind of gets glossed over because we focus on, you know, John Wilkes Booth. We focus on Abraham Lincoln. And then we kind of move on with the restoration of the South and all of that. But here's this little moment of, like, here's what happened to the people that weren't John Wilkes Booth who were part of this conspiracy, or maybe they weren't. And I was very happy that the movie didn't seem to stray into conspiracy theory. It didn't seem to stray into um, painting Mary Surratt in a good or bad way. It seems to... It, they definitely take this road of going, um, this is what we know. Mm-hmm. And you can see where it it looks very incriminating. Yet, at the same time, did she is she guilty of this awful thing it's kind of hard to say you know and that's that, that to me that's very interesting and you know i don't i won't spoil it for anybody who doesn't know the history of that moment i knew going in the outcome of the trial um 
but it's great. I, I, I would really recommend it to anybody. James McAvoy is the, the main character playing uh, Frederick Aiken, and um, great, great movie. I, it's it's great. I would highly recommend it. Uh, two other movies I saw. Uh, one was actually not a movie. Uh, the Kennedys. It was a miniseries that I guess it never got released on television due to some weird, I don't know what. Yeah, I, I, I never quite fully understood that what happened with it because they had shot the whole thing and it, shot, it had yeah, gotten shot, like rave reviews from people and then they never aired it yeah my my understanding and this might be conspiracy <laughs> um my understanding is they shot it for nbc or abc they shot it for one of the main uh television channels and then somebody and the story is it's one somebody attached to the kennedy family basically paid them not to air it and so then they ended up airing it on stars or showtime or some other network that is really kind of more under the radar and it's a pretty solid miniseries there are some weak parts to it um i'm not a big fan of katie holmes and i'm not she felt a little out of her element in this um but greg kinnear as as john and uh, uh barry pepper as bobby I wanted to see more Bobby. Barry Pepper is fantastic. He's one of my favorite underrated, um, underused actors, and um, he's fantastic. It's a it's it's a it's a pretty solid piece. Um, sometimes it it feels a little too documentary ish, where I kind of want a little bit more emotion. I want to get caught up in the moments a little bit more, and it seems to be a lot of reenacting um, a lot of moments as opposed to instilling a real strong narrative. Um, they don't spend any time. Another thing is that I thought was interesting. They really don't get into any of the conspiracies. Um, they really kind of, they seem to try to present things as we understand them to be. So they don't really get into um, the JFK assassination. You, know, you see it, but they present it as uh, Lee Harvey Oswald and that's it. And then they move on. And it's like, they don't spend time into the, into that investigation or the Warren report or all of that. Um, they don't spend a lot of time getting into all of uh, JFK's extramarital affairs. They don't, I mean, it's their part of the story, but they don't spend a lot of time with it, which I really thought the, the show was going to be about. I thought it was going to be a little bit more, um, well, sensational, since it's a miniseries on television. That's kind of what they do. Um, but it's good. I mean, it, it gets into the, the family dynamics as to why John F. Kennedy and uh, Bobby Kennedy got into politics. Um, there's a lot of little uh, family elements that I wasn't aware of, and... Um, I still not entirely sure that I know the whole story, and I'm not sure we ever will because, again, this is a TV sh- a TV movie series, and so I can't take it as complete truth. But it's good; I'd, I'd recommend it. Um, last one that I saw this week, I just watched this last night. Um, it's called Afghanistan. Um, it is a documentary by uh, comedian Graham Elwood, who uh, is part of a podcast I listen to called uh, The Comedy Film Nerds. And it is about him going over to Afghanistan to entertain the troops. He shot this little documentary, and it is it is very good. I would well, I was entertained. He it, the whole thing is shot kind of it looks like on mini DV. It's not the best quality looking uh, movie you're ever going to watch. He makes some very odd editing decisions. I feel some very weird dissolves and some. You'd kind of have to see it to understand what I'm saying, but he makes some strange decisions. That being said, I'm a huge sucker for almost anything related to the military. Um, both of my grandfathers fought in World War II. My dad 
fought in Vietnam, and then it went on to, uh, he fought in Vietnam in the Army, and then he got went into the Air Force. My little brother was uh, born during the first Gulf War while my dad was still serving. And so I'm kind of a sucker for any time something kind of pops up about the military or about war. And so to see this as a slightly different um, take on things, a slightly different perspective, um, but I thought it was really, really good. I really did enjoy his perspective of going over there and you see him as just as a comedian and suddenly he's in Afghanistan, um, the most landmined country in the world. He is con- constantly reminded while he's there. Um, you can find it. I think, I don't think you can find it on Netflix or anywhere else. He is selling it on his website. So you have to buy it to watch it, but it's one of those pay what you will. So you can get it for a penny or you can give him $300 for it. We you know whatever your choice is. It's at laughganistanthemovie.com and that's spelled L A F F G H A N I S T A N themovie.com all one word. Um, I would recommend it. It's it's definitely it's an hour and a half. It's it's funny, it's kind of scary at times. It's uh, it's a really nice look at, you know, the troops and everything that's kind of going on there it's not it's completely apolitical it has no it has no commentary as to you know should we be over there blah blah it doesn't get into any of that it is literally just one comedian's journey into the heart of afghanistan and him trying to entertain the troops while being completely terrified the entire time nice (laughs) well that does sound good i will have to look that up yeah, I, yeah. Again, I would recommend it. I, I'd kind of be interested on your take on it because there's a couple of sequences that are just they borderline on bizarre because of his editing decisions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you just kind of go, oh, here's somebody who clearly he clearly likes movies. I think, according from his podcast, I think he might have gone to film school. Mm-hmm. But I mean, he is a stand-up comedian. That is his job, um, and so he's not necessarily a filmmaker, right? Interesting. All right. Yeah. Well, I'll have to. Definitely check that out. Um, <sighs> Should we get into Pulp Fiction, or is there anything else you'd like to talk about? No, I mean, the only other thing that I can think of to talk about is, of course, all of the news coming out of Netflix, and that just is depressing, okay. mostly. So I don't know if that, it's worth talking about that or not. I'm very curious to see how this all pans out, because it does not seem like a smart decision on almost any on any level. I was going to say, for those uh, who may be listening to this in the future or something... Um, yeah, the significant future. What we're referencing is uh, Netflix just announced in the last couple of days that they are going to uh, split their services. They have, uh, they're going to keep the Netflix company, and it's just going to do streaming video. And then they are starting a like sister company, Quickster, called Quickster, um, the Friendster of DVD. Uh, yeah, I don't think that's their tagline, but I. But yeah, but, but yeah, that's basically it. like Netflix will continue streaming, mm-hmm. and all of their DVD rentals will now be handled through Quickster. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, it's going to be separate websites, separate queues, separate everything, which kind separate of rating systems. Yeah, it kind of defeats the entire purpose of having, you know, an integrated well, system. It's so, yeah, it's so interesting to me where like every everybody else right now is trying to streamline and make things as easy and convenient mm-hmm. as possible. They're now creating a service that demands that I visit. If I'm going to continue doing what I want to do, I'm going to have to now visit two websites, mm-hmm. uh, manage two queues, manage two rating systems, or whatever. And it's like, really? Because I'm already doing that with, I already have Netflix and Hulu. Mm-hmm. So I already have these two queues going. Um, 
I don't know if I want a third one, yet I still want DVDs because Netflix doesn't have all of their movies for streaming. Mm-hmm. It, uh, the, the one thing I will say for it is I can totally see how, as we are moving forward, um, the world in general is moving away from physical media. Mm-hmm. And I can see... Um, I can see possibly the benefit, at least from a company standpoint. I don't, I don't know that it benefits me as the end user, but I can see from a from from the company standpoint why it would be useful to have separate branches or arms that handle each of those things. Because I have a feeling one of those they are going to want to phase out over time, or it's going to become a really niche market kind of thing, or you know something like that, as opposed yeah. to to the broad base that it is. And, um, and I could I could definitely see that it just it it kind of if, if as a as a person who uses the the service it frustrates me that it's going to be coming from two different websites essentially is the the alienation of the two it seems exactly. odd to me that they're not going to still be connected though right at like, least on at least on a level where I can I can understand restructuring your company so that mm-hmm. you know. We're going to really be focusing on this, so let's start downsizing the DVD side of it, even to the point of making it inconvenient for people who want DVDs. The wait might be longer on DVDs. I understand kind of doing that um, because you're right. I think there will. I think there'll definitely come a point where Quickster closes mm-hmm. because everybody's going to be doing it digitally. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that you, there's a way to do that within Netflix without it actually affecting. The customer. So, uh, I, my I basic know. my basic frustration is, you know, it's going to be um, a much more painful sort of thing to go. Oh, I want to watch, let's say, the greatest movie ever sold. Oh, it's not available on streaming here on Netflix. I must now switch websites. Yeah, and go, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's mild inconvenience, and it's it's, but it's, it's it, it it's is a, an extra <laughs> process, and you're going to have to be intentional about really wanting to get movies on DVD as it's opposed a, to yeah. just popping them into your queue really quickly. It is a first world problem, no doubt about yes. it. <laughs> you so, know, um, but yeah. it's still one of those things where it's like this seems like a backwards step. So my big hope, though, is that this really does signify that Netflix is really serious about their streaming. Yeah. And making it more available to people, making it more, um, uh, you know, it's a better process. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that's the case, uh, you know, the biggest thing I really hope is that means that they are also going to up their content game um, yes. with it. That's, so that is what I. That's my only complaint right now about the Netflix mm-hmm. streaming is I want more movies exactly. to be streaming. And so, uh, assuming that they can get their content up, uh, really, I can't complain too much because it's still. Even if it's slightly more inconvenient, it's still the best $15 a month that I spent. Absolutely. So, anyhow, there you go. Slight rant, slight rave, slight yeah. still in love with Netflix, despite everything. Yeah, I wouldn't be... Yeah, and honestly, do, I mean, this these rants are all over the internet this week, and so I wouldn't be surprised, honestly, if by the end of the month there is a new announcement from Netflix or yes. something, some kind of compromise, because it does seem a little ridiculous, but... Indeed. We'll see. Indeed. All right, so Pulp Fiction. <laughs> yes. Now that you've spent time with us uh, on all of these other random and sundry things, uh, what we're here for is AFI's number 94 on the top 100 American films of all time list, uh, Pulp Fiction. Written and directed by Quentin Tarantino, released in 1994. Correct. So, um, what do you think, Scott? Um, well... I have a history with this movie because 
you and I both went to film school, and you really can't escape film school at this point without seeing Pulp Fiction, I think, or there's a handful of those movies that really kind of get talked about and emulated now in film school, and I think Pulp Fiction is definitely one of those movies. Um, I remember when it came out, I was, I think, going into my sophomore year of high school, and I was taking a a summer class, and the teacher there was raving and raving about this movie, and I was just like, at the time, all I knew about it was, it was this insanely violent movie uh, starring John Travolta. (laughs) You know, that was my understanding of it, and then I ended up getting to see it, I think, for the first time, um, 10 years later or something, when it was, you know, out on DVD, and uh, I think I was watching it in the dorm, and I didn't like it the first time through. It was just, it wasn't my cup of tea. I was like, this this is what everybody's making a big fuss about. It doesn't make any sense. It's a bunch of characters running into each other. Ugh, whatever. And I moved on with life. Um, coming back to it, I've seen it, I think, two or three times since then. And I've come to really appreciate and actually um, enjoy a lot of what's going on. Um, that being said, it's a, uh, what it's about, essentially... I wrote this little thing here because I was trying to I was trying to kind of piece together the story in a cohesive way mm-hmm. because it is so sprawling. It's a it's a big ensemble piece. Um, the story's told non chronologically, um, and so trying to actually look at what the movie's about, I've kind of come up with this. Um, it is a glimpse into the underbelly of L.A. Uh, the story revolves around the people in Marcellus Wallace's life. Marcellus Wallace is a mean, not very nice guy who may have thrown a man out of a four-story window for giving his wife a foot massage. And he knows a lot of mean, not very nice people. When the film, while the film is an ensemble piece, the bulk of the story has to do with the hitmen Vincent Vega and Jules Winfield. So that, to me, is the movie in a nutshell. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I think if, if you were definitely looking at the movie as a, you know, what is the plot of this movie, that sums it up. Uh, I'm not sure that this is a movie that you can really look at no. specifically for the plot, though. I think that's kind of... Uh, to me, uh, this movie is entirely... Well, it's it's really kind of a... To me, it's a love story, not in the movie itself, but from Quentin Tarantino. It's like a love note or something to the movies of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, kind of. You know, it's yes. very... Um, it's incredibly much more. I think it's it's incredibly much more less about the specific story and more about the individual characters and the um, and just kind of what they evoke. <laughs> you know, they they absolutely all... absolutely. Um, Ridley Scott, I think it was on the set of Alien, mm-hmm. said that he he likes to make movies that are very collaborative. He he likes to hear ideas from everybody on set. He says because um, he says the best directors are the people who know who to steal from. So mm-hmm. if someone has a good idea, he'll take that from them and go, "Hey, look what I, look what we did here!" And he gets all the credit for it. He said it kind of tongue in cheek, kind of you know with a wink. But Quentin Tarantino does that, and does that with a very obvious, these are the things I love, and I've put them together into a movie. Look at this, mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of a way. Yeah, you know, so it's it's very much, um, you know, it's very Raymond Chandler, very, uh, you know, it's, it's the kind of movie that you could imagine Humphrey Bogart would be making today if he was still alive. It's kind, right. of, it's kind of how I look at it. And... Um, 
you know, it is it is violent. It is it has some very unpleasant things in it. But that's not really the stuff you remember about it when you watch it. It's you know, when you watch this movie, you remember these crazy conversations that people have. Yeah. Um, that are both at the same time they do two things. They are both like very over the top, mm-hmm. um, incredibly exaggerated conversations. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, they feel exactly like the sorts of conversations that you have with your friends. Yeah. And it, yeah, it's the kind of conversations you have with your friends in a very stylized way. You mentioned Humphrey Bogart. It To me, it almost, and this is really out there maybe, but it almost feels like Shakespeare in the way that it almost feels like a stage play where these characters come out and they talk in these big verbose ways and then they go off to do the action, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's very, very stylized. It's a very Quentin Tarantino. He has a very distinct rhythm and banter style uh, between two people. Um, that is very interesting. And to me, I think there's... It took me a little while to get back into it um, because when it, when it first started... Uh, specifically once you get past the diner scene and you have the two guys in the car, their whole conversation leading to the apartment, for whatever reason, maybe it's because this movie's, you know, um, how old is this movie now? 94, it's 17 years old. old. There was something almost a little corny about it. Like, Mm -hmm. the the moment where they stop and describe what a pilot episode is Mm -hmm. was a little painful for me. I don't know why. It was just like, really? That's what we're going to spend our time in this movie discussing what a pilot (laughs) episode is? And maybe that's just because here in 2011... We all know a pilot episode. We all know episode. what a pilot episode is, yeah. So maybe in 94, there was still a little bit of mystique and mystery surrounding the TV um, process. But now that we've lived through the canceling of Firefly, and we've we've seen these actors and everybody are talking more and more about this, we get it. you know. And we, we watch movies now on Netflix and on Hulu, and so we've all seen that that first episode is almost always called pilot <laughs> and so it's like that's not really interesting information anymore mm-hmm. um but my favorite scenes still are the ones uh with those two hitmen like i you know um royales I, with cheese and- the, the royale with cheese i can leave but the say what again mm-hmm. <laughs> like that the the whole uh apartment sequence uh is maybe one of my favorite sequences um just it makes me laugh out loud every single time because it's it's really well written dark comedy <laughs> where he's he's a hitman with a gun on a guy and this guy is just kind of going, what what he keeps going like I, I don't understand what's going on what what and he, he you know and then you have a uh, uh, is it Jules yeah it's Jules kind of treating his exasperation as if they are his real answers and it's it's just very very funny to me. Well, and that's that is how a lot of this movie is played. Is um, either either the dialogue is funny, or it creates a very fascinating subtext to the action that is going on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff where the characters are talking about something, and meanwhile they're doing a completely different thing, or they are, um, you know, using using their dialogue to further expand an understanding of themselves as a character while they are performing actions. Yeah. Um, it's very interesting that the actions don't necessarily match the dialogue, but they match the character and it's yeah. a fascinating piece of character development to use dialogue in such a way, um, 
that you can you can develop a character in two ways at the same time because in most right. movies, I mean, you take take any normal movie, uh, you know, most movies it will say something like, uh, you know, uh, we need to go do this now, and that's kind of how the dialogue goes. Is it's 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 explaining the next plot point, it's pushing the movie forward, it's kind of just you know making the next thing happen. Um, there's it's, it's very utilitarian in most movies, and there's not much yeah. there, there's not much art to it. Um, no. In this movie, the dialogue has almost nothing to do with the actual plot of the movie. I mean, it does, but it, it, it's it's entirely yeah characters it, it, characters saying what's on their mind. It goes back and forth because you, you have moments where they're talking about the royale with cheese, and then you have in the very next scene they're talking about Marcellus Wallace. And exactly. It's kind of a, and so it's kind of important for you to you hear that, and then you understand who that character is once you finally meet him, mm-hmm. um, and you understand the why John Travolta is intimidated by his wife and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they definitely the, most of the dialogue tends to kind of look into the characters as opposed to what the, the characters don't sit around commenting on. This is what we're doing right now. This is what I'm going to do tomorrow. Blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, it's very fascinating um, to be able to build that kind of a, a thing where you have characters saying one thing, doing another, and both things build. It, it makes the characters so much stronger because you get both a glimpse into their psyche and, yeah. and who they are and what makes them tick, as well as you get to see what they are doing. And it's just it's a very uh, because of that you have so much more connection to these characters than you do in most movies. And, and you have so much more understanding of who even the most insignificant person is in this world. You know, people who only have a few lines, you get more understanding of who that person is yeah. than most movies can accomplish in their entire two hours. Yeah. Um, so that, to me, that's kind of the triumph of what this movie does. Um, and, you know, I think that, to me, that is probably enough in and of itself, to get it onto this list, because I, I think it's just such an incredibly well-written film. Yeah, and that's, honestly, that was the turning point for me with this movie, was I saw it the first time, I really, I'll be honest, I really didn't get it. I'm like, I, I okay, whatever. Um, but people kept talking about it, and so I ended up finding a copy of the script at a used bookstore, and I bought it, and I sat down, and I read it, and then I watched it again, and then I got it. I was like, "I see what you did there. I see what you've done." It, you know, it's like there there was something there that just didn't click for me that first time. Um, and now it's it's a movie that like I don't necessarily need to watch it ever again. Mm-hmm. But if someone said, "Hey, let's watch Pulp Fiction," I'd be like, "Okay, yeah, I could do that." You know, it's not a, it's I don't love or hate this movie. It's there's a lot about it that I I like. There's a lot about it that I kind of respect. That's specifically the craft of how he tells the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are certain scenes, like I mentioned the, the apartment scene. Mm-hmm. Um, I also really, really love, my favorite scene really has to be the, the final scene of the movie in the, uh, in the diner once again, mm-hmm. um, where uh, Jules is there and he has this little monologue um, where he's talking about how he wants to be a good man, basically, mm-hmm. but the world won't let him. <laughs> you know, all of these people around him and the world that he actually lives in won't let him be um, a good person. And he would really like to be a good person. And I think that's just a really kind of a fascinating moment to end on. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and it's, it's but yeah, and it's it's all dialogue, it's all character, and I just I really really dig that scene. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know that's that's kind of how this movie works. Is there? It's just there's there's fantastic scenes like that. You know, I I I love the scene where um, Bruce Willis's girlfriend is talking about her pot belly and stuff. Yeah, I've always thought that's just belly. a. I, I love that sequence, um, and. Um, I, you know, it's just it's. I love the uh, the Christopher Walken sequence with the watch. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it's just there, there's wonderful sequences in here that um, you know I certainly am happy every time I see them again. They just kind of make me laugh or or yes, just kind of you know. I forgotten that Christopher Walken was in this, and all of a sudden it cuts to him, and I'm like, oh yeah, he has one scene, and he has it's a monologue, and it's fantastic. And, yeah, it just it's fantastic. Um, you know, I, want, so, I was say I wanted to kind of comment on the structure of the of the movie itself mm-hmm. because he did something um, in this that I think people have tried to imitate, uh, especially in the independent film world, and I don't think anybody has ever done it right, other than Quentin Tarantino. Um, I think Steven Soderbergh tried to do it with Out of Sight. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could even say Guy Ritchie has been inspired. I don't think Guy Ritchie tried to be Quentin Tarantino, but I think he was definitely inspired by him. Possibly Memento did it right. I could argue. For okay, that. I would. Okay, I could see Memento because that was a very that was almost a very different thing that happened there. But um, with this movie, he instead of he basically forgoes the traditional. This is the way the story unfolds because of how many characters are involved in this and the way they relate to each other, he kind of basically chooses to take us on an emotional arc as opposed to an actual story arc. Mm-hmm. You know, Because if you actually laid this story out chronologically, the last sequence, the last 15, 20 minutes of the movie would be devoted to Bruce Willis. Because that's really the last, in the timeline, that's the last event of the story, is mm-hmm. him and his confrontation with Zed and driving off with his girlfriend. And, uh... That takes place almost, like, an hour into the movie, as opposed to, like, the last... And, and, and as a spoiler alert, uh, a major event that happens to John Travolta, um, yeah. you know, partway through the movie, um, basically negates the ability for him to be throughout the rest of the movie. Um, yes. and yet, he's there for the rest of the movie, because it's right. stuff that happens before this event kind of in the middle of the film. Yeah, exactly. Because if you if you took my favorite scene, the diner scene, um, if you took that and put it in the right chronological place, it would happen in the first hour of the movie, more or less. Maybe maybe halfway through. Mm-hmm. And instead of instead by putting it at the end, there's this wonderful bit of closure on these characters. You have this moment of you know, upon, of upon reflection of this entire movie and all the horrible things you have just witnessed here's a character who's going to try to be better. He might always be a hitman, but in this little moment, he's saying, I think I'm done. I want to be, how does he say it? I want to be a wanderer, you know, go from place to place and get into adventure, get into adventures, which I love. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I kind of, I, you know, I know Quentin Tarantino has talked about making another Kill Bill movie. Mm -hmm. I would kind of like to see another uh, Jules movie. I'd almost kind of like to see what he would do with him wandering around like he like he uh describes in this movie um but that being said 
it, I think it's I think it's really interesting what he did there. He seems to really understand his content in a way that other people don't. Other people, I think, have tried to go. Oh, people like stories that are told unchronologically. We can do that. Mm-hmm. And like, well, no, it's more than just editing. He, you know, he actually structured this in a very specific way so that you have a first act, second act, third act structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there's a reason for everything that he's done in it. And, yeah, and that's very, yeah. Yeah, it's it's very important. To, and I think that's maybe the the point of this film is is that it you know, it came at a time, it came in in 94 um at a point where films had really turned into a very specific set of things. You know, they were blockbusters, they were, you know, uh you know, they they were big yeah. movies and that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, I, think, I think 94, this was, I think, the, the time where we had finally, as an audience, had kind of become aware of tropes. Even if we didn't know the word tropes, we all kind of knew, oh, look, there's a close-up of that thing. Mm-hmm. That means that's going to come back to haunt us later. Oh, look, here's the hero. He's tortured. They'll get back together in the mm-hmm. third reel. You know, we had all kind of become aware of the the pattern of a lot of movies, right. and then and then Quentin Tarantino shows up, and he basically, in one fell swoop, mm-hmm. completely upended what you could expect out of a movie. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, violent and over the top, and uh, and it's 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 great, and at the same time, it completely challenges your preconceptions of what to expect. And I think I think that really may be the greatest achievement of this movie because I think it, it injected new life into cinema. Um, yeah. And and I think that's a huge, huge deal. Um, it made movies better for everyone to have this movie exist. Mm-hmm. I, w- I, would, I would honestly agree with that. It's... Whether you end up liking this movie or not, this movie made film better by mm-hmm. existing. And to me... Again, on top of the dialogue and everything, that really does make sense for it to be in um, in this list. And you know, and I'm sure there's other movies in this list, in, in the AFI list, that are probably like that as well. Where you know, the movie, you know, I think back to maybe something like, um, um, you know, we covered Yankee Doodle Dandy here recently. It wasn't a movie that either of us really loved per se it is weird that they're so close on the list yeah but at the same time i can see that being the sort of movie where you could go you know possibly looking into the context of the times you know what cinema might be significantly better today because this movie exists you know it might have been that sort of a movie you know i don't know that as much as i know that with pulp fiction yeah but definitely. Go. So that's kind of both my summary and takeaway from this movie. Fair enough. I think we can. I think we can pretty much end on that. It's a movie I would, you know, I would definitely recommend. Um, it is. I mean, it is a very hard R movie. It is. So which I would always advise people of. It is. It has very dark material. Um, there's some very unpleasant things that happen in it. Mm-hmm. That being said, it's a pretty good ride. It's a movie that you might want to watch twice not back to back but it took me at least watching it two times to really kind of understand and appreciate a lot of what was going on this is the movie that uh jump started or restarted i should say john travolta's career it this is the movie that really kind of defined that has defined samuel jackson for the past 20 years um it 
it, you know, this is the movie that everybody kind of thinks of when they think of uh, Quentin Tarantino and the movies he continues to make. I think I don't know if he's ever escaped the shadow of this movie, um, and I, I would like to see Quentin Tarantino grow. I know he's he's maybe one of the best uh, filmmakers out there right now, but at the same time, I, I would kind of like to see him get away a little bit from some of the things that he has come to really embrace that kind of, I think came from this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this is the, kind of a, one of those must see movies of the nineties. This is one of the, if you made a top 10 chart of the nineties movies, this might be number one. I don't know. Um, I would definitely recommend, you know, checking it out. Netflix, it's on Netflix streaming right now, which hopefully it'll stay there. Right. Yes. So, but um, yeah, again, just aside from, from the caveats of it being a really hard R, you know, uh, Pretty much, if you can imagine it being in an R movie, it's in this movie. So keep that in mind. But otherwise, yeah, go go enjoy. Yeah. All right. Um, so next, yeah, next week uh, we will be back with uh, number ninety three on our list, which is the French Connection, a movie I have never seen, and I'm looking forward to uh, sitting down and watching it. Indeed. Have you seen it? I have not actually. Oddly yeah. Enough. So. I've- this one will be fresh to both of us. Excellent. Indeed. So, all right, uh, The French Connection next time on this podcast. Yep. See you then. All right. Bye. You've been listening to the Movies You Should Love podcast. Join in the conversation at moviesyoushouldlove.com.